2: 15 miles outside Tirana, the capital of Albania, towards the coast, there's a mysterious camp. And it's home, sort of, to almost 3,000 Iranian dissidents. The group takes credit to a certain extent for the wave of uprisings
1: that's been going on there. Over the past few years, they claim to be coordinating protests inside Iran and that they have a large clandestine network of quote-unquote resistance units
2: no british reporter had previously visited the camp until my colleague matthew campbell was granted access
1: it was a very highly stage managed operation i have to say this group is very very
2: anxious about infiltration by the regime so what is going on there how much influence does the secretive group have back home And how did they end up in Albania? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, with the Ayatollah's enemies in Albania.
1: On the side of the road, I noticed some armed guards staring at us with a rather anxious look, actually.
2: Matthew Campbell's a foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times. He's been with the paper for over 30 years.
1: So we pulled off the road into a sort of little lay by in front of a large white gate with iron bars, and there were gatehouses on either side of it. And through the bars, I could see a road leading uphill towards a giant archway crowned with golden lions. It looked very grand indeed.
2: Matthew had been trying to visit for some time. He's the first British reporter granted access to the heavily guarded location where the dissidents have been living since 2016.
1: I was met there by officials from the camp who subjected myself and a team from the Sunday Times, including a photographer and a videographer, to one of the most rigorous security checks I've ever been through, actually, and I've been through quite a few of them in my time. Every inch of my rucksack had been massaged manually and uh, the photographer had to remove all of his camera lenses and they were peered at for a very long time. There's a great sense of uh, paranoia, I think, almost. The camp has been scoped out numerous times by Iranian intelligence operatives, apparently. There are constant attempts to sabotage and attack it, we were told, hence the security.
2: The camp Matthew is visiting is home to the MEK, the People's Mujahideen of Iran, who are led by the mysterious, some say sinister, Maryam Rajavi.
1: They started out decades ago in 1965. They were formed by a group of leftists in Iran in opposition to the Shah. And when the Shah was overthrown in 1979, they very quickly fell out with the new rulers as well, the Ayatollahs. MEK, or the People's Mujahideen of Iran, then declared war on the Islamic Republic, ruthlessly killing their fellow countrymen. In 1981, there was a big nationwide crackdown against the MEK, and lots of them were executed, and things only got worse for them as the years went on.
0: Back in the 1980s in the Iran-Iraq war, the MEK fought on the side of Saddam Hussein against their own country so many Iranians saw them as traitors. The Iranian regime then executed thousands of MEK political prisoners.
1: They had previously lived in exile in Iraq, having basically fled their country after widespread executions. And most of their members have been imprisoned and tortured. And there's hardly one of them who hasn't lost some loved one, brother, sister, father, mother, to the hangman.
2: The regime is always watching them more than watching
0: beefed up security outside an antwerp court inside judges found iranian envoy asadola assadi guilty of a foiled bomb plot sentencing him to 20 years behind bars
2: assadi was involved in a plot to bomb a gathering of the mek in paris which was expected to be attended by 25,000 people
0: iran's foreign ministry has strongly condemned the sentencing Calling it, quote, a flagrant violation of international law.
2: Last month, as the MEK prepare for their annual global gathering, Matthew drove west from Albania's capital, Tirana.
1: I'd never been to Albania in my long career of travelling around the world, trouble spots, but I went to visit what they call a camp, which is officially known as Ashraf 3.
2: The story of the MEK and how they came to be in Albania is a strange one, which we'll come to. But right now, we're back at that arch with its gleaming golden lions.
1: It's a bit like the Arc de Triomphe in the centre of Paris, not quite that big. But you go round it and there are proper roads and roundabouts and speed limits and uh, tree-lined avenues. But the first thing that I noticed, besides this monumental archway, was around about where we came to the first monument, which was several bronze figures on a huge lump of stone. And this is commemorating the uprising in 2019, which, as you may recall, I think up to 1,500 people were, were shot dead in the streets in various cities of Iran.
2: The protests were known as Bloody November, and were the most serious civil unrest in Iran since the 1979 revolution. But the camp isn't all arches and memorials. They were rather curious buildings, actually. Not
1: exactly prefabricated-looking buildings, but some of them quite gargantuan, and it reminded me a bit of Hollywood studios or (laughs) possibly startups in Silicon Valley, white buildings without too many large windows, I suppose, to keep out the heat, and then smaller buildings to the side, very well-maintained roads. And somebody had obviously paid a lot of attention to the landscaping as well, because there were recently planted trees and some herbaceous borders as well.
2: Are people actually living there? And if so... What ages and how many of them could you tell?
1: They claim that there are some 2,800 people living in the camp. I met a few dozen people, I would say, in the camp, and we saw lots of others, but it was hard to get a clear idea of exactly how many people were living there. Our meetings were largely held in public spaces. I didn't see any of the living accommodation. And again, this was explained to me as being partly due to COVID and partly due to uh, security concerns. The, The argument used was that you know, sometimes even a very small detail could be of use to the enemy. And so they had to be very careful in what they showed us. And did you see any children? There are no children in the camp. This group has forsaken family life entirely. I think Part of the reason why some people see this group as a bizarre sort of cult, they've all taken a vow of celibacy. In other words, romantic relationships are outlawed, and this is a sacrifice, they say, is necessary to retain their focus on the primary goal of overthrowing the regime in Iran, And until they have achieved this, they say, they will carry on sacrificing life as normal until the victory is won.
2: As part of his visit to the camp, Matthew was filming a short documentary for which he interviewed these women about what they'd given up for the cause. It's a choice. You know, we were always
0: free to make this decision or not. And you know we are ready to de- to you know to sacrifice everything, and it's it's just one of one of it you know uh, and
1: if you if you change your mind, you're free to go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is that right?
0: Yeah. yeah of course
2: Where did they take you then for for the next bit of your visit? It
1: was a very highly stage managed operation, I have to say this group is very, very anxious about infiltration by the regime. As I mentioned also, they have suffered enormously at the hands of the regime with assassination attempts, bombings, not to mention all the executions of their loved ones and family members. And so they show a level of determination, which was quite surprising. I think in some ways to show us certain things while keeping other things hidden. And I'm not quite sure what those other things may have been, but I was left with the very strong feeling that there was a lot that, you know, we weren't being shown. The first building that they took us into was described as the media center. And this was, you know, a gargantuan uh, building. When we went in, there was almost, I would say, an acre of shiny floor space. So my first impression was that I'd stepped into an airport departure lounge. It was, you oh. know, highly air-conditioned it was one end, there were some some screens on the wall. At the other, there was a coffee bar. But there was nobody there. And when I looked more closely, I saw that at, at one end of the room, there were
2: two or three figures standing there wearing dark suits. Men in dark suits watching. But it turned out these weren't spooks or thugs. There was a more mundane explanation. The visit was timed to coincide with this annual
1: so-called summit meeting that they hold, in which the leader, Maryam Rajavi, makes speeches. And so that's why the men, I think, were wearing suits and ties. And very soon, we were ushered into another large building, which was where Maryam Rajavi was about to appear. And there were these rows and rows of women in red headscarves waiting for her to walk onto the
2: stage. Did you get the impression that the things you couldn't see might have involved anything vaguely military? It's entirely possible. I asked
1: whether there was military training being conducted in the camp, and they said not, and I didn't see any sign of it. The history of the group is, part of the history is that they renounced violence in 2003 when they gave up all of their weapons, and that was in Iraq, when the Americans assumed responsibility for their camp. They are, however, still committed to the overthrow of the theocratic regime in Tehran, the Islamic fundamentalist regime. That is the purpose of their existence. The big question is, how, how do you expect to do it from this hideaway in Albania? The group takes credit to a certain extent for the wave of uprisings that's been going on there. Over the past few years, they claim to be coordinating protests inside Iran and that they have a large clandestine network of quote-unquote resistance units. We all hear from time to time, reading the newspapers or listening to the radio, reports of mysterious Explosions in Iran, (laughs) nuclear facilities being targeted, even assassinations. Some breaking news
0: for you. Iranian state media are saying one of the country's top nuclear scientists has been assassinated.
1: I asked if any of these incidents could be attributed to MEK networks inside Iran, and they strongly denied that this was anything to do with them. I asked if it was possible that their networks were working in alliance with Israel's secret service Mossad, which is sometimes suspected of carrying out these operations. One Iranian expert friend of mine had told me that he assumed that Mossad was using the MEK's network in Iran. The leaders of the organisation that I spoke to in the camp in Albania strongly denied it. I imagine that you know that they would have to deny it, so it, it's hard to know for sure.
2: Coming up, Matthew is taken to the leader. But first...
0: Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerins, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
2: Matthew was first contacted by a member of the MEK many years ago, but it's only recently that he got to speak to its leader, Maryam Rajavi. I remember when I was in
1: London in the mid-90s as Foreign Editor of the Sunday Times uh, a man called Mr. Shaheen Gabadi came to see me in my office with one of his colleagues who was complaining of feeling unwell. It turned out that he had recently survived an assassination attempt, being shot in the liver in Istanbul. That always stuck in my mind. Mr. Gabardi is a relentlessly energetic and dynamic press spokesman for this organization, who is known to many of my colleagues, I think, and who later moved to Paris. It so happened that I was in Paris as well for quite a few years, and he tracked me down there and would occasionally send me press releases about events involving the MEK, and once or twice, we met for lunch. I was reminded of him when I was reading something uh, a few months ago. And every previous time I'd met him, I'd said, I'd like to do an interview with Mariam Rajavi. And he'd always said, oh, well, we'll see, we'll see. You know, one day, perhaps, one day. And then eventually, he contacted me a few months ago and said, well, perhaps you can talk to Mariam Rajavi. And I said, well, can I come to your
2: camp? Now, I noticed a little bit about this. And... Marian Rajavi is not just the leader like, let's say, Keir Starmer is the leader of the Labour Party. She is regarded as, isn't she, the embodiment of the movement. I mean, she is the leader with a capital T and a capital L.
1: Yes, and some people have spoken about the MEK as a personality cult, you know. Marianne Rajavi, since 2003, has been in absolute command of this movement. She lives in Paris which is the headquarters of a thing called the National Council of Resistance of Iran. But it's a sort of umbrella group for the opposition, and the MEK is its biggest component. She flew in to Albania, and I managed to have a chat with her. She is greatly revered by her followers, and that was to see when she walked along this catwalk between the rows of women in red headscarves. They all stood and cheered and were waving their flags at her. She was wearing a rather striking olive green outfit with a matching headscarf. And then later on when we met, she appeared in an electric blue suit again with a matching headscarf that seemed to bring out the blue in her pale gray eyes. And she has what I would call a beatific smile on her face, almost permanently on her face. She smiles even when she's talking about the most horrific cases of torture and abuse by the regime, which she does often. Good evening, Mrs. Rajavi. Thank you so much for sparing the time. Thank you very much for welcoming us.
0: Welcome.
1: Thank you. We ended up having a a 15-minute chat in this rather grand reception room where she sat on a, a chair that seemed to be embossed with gold thread. It reminded me of a throne, in a sense. She was flanked by an Iranian flag and sitting there with rather an imperious demeanor. I suppose it's quite appropriate. I mean, she is the descendant of a dynasty, I think, that ruled in Persia for 30 years or so, up until 1925. And now she is convinced that The victory is near. She told me that she thought resistance was growing and that we're closer than ever to the goal of overthrowing this regime.
0: You must have seen over the past two years the young generation of Iran who have joined the resistance unit and the resistance council, who are prepared to make the sacrifice. These are the people who are prepared to sacrifice even their own lives, because what they are doing, writing slogans on the wall or distributing a leaflet against the regime, any of this could end up with them in prison, suffering torture and really
1: harsh punishment. And she said this is an example of how our networks are growing inside Iran. The end is looming for this appalling regime. And she hopes that it won't be long. She actually said that A year before the Shah was overthrown, Jimmy Carter had visited Tehran and said, Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. Of course, a year later, he was gone, she
2: said. And presumably, therefore, by the same token, if the regime thinks it's safe, that's a sure sign that actually it's doomed.
1: Well, <laughs> given that we are seeing these protests across Iran, the sense, certainly in the opposition camp, is that this is a sign that the regime is in big trouble. Another sign of trouble for the regime, according to uh, Maryam Rajavi, is the election of Ebrahim Raisi as president of Iran.
2: His nickname is The
0: Butcher. And now he's the president of Iran.
2: Elected in June polls marked by record abstention, Ibrahim Raisi succeeded Hassan Rouhani as Iran's new president. The conservative cleric who ran on an anti-poverty and anti-corruption platform previously held several positions in Iran's justice system.
1: And in the MEK camp, he is seen as the devil incarnate. He, in the 80s, was in charge of the so-called death committee that ordered executions. In 1988, in a few months, he is said to have been personally responsible for the deaths of 30,000 people who were hanged in large groups. Most of them were political prisoners who belonged to the MEK.
2: It takes quite a stretch, doesn't it, to see that as a hopeful sign.
1: Yes, I think she makes the point that in the West, we surely are not going to sit down and do business with such a monster who really should be in front of a Crimes Against Humanity court. The argument goes that it's going to be much harder for Western powers to make concessions to a regime led by such a figure. One thing we haven't explained yet
2: is, why is the camp in Albania?
1: It's the first thing one wonders really, why Albania indeed? When life became intolerable for them in Iraq, the Americans essentially came to the rescue.
0: When the Americans toppled Saddam in 2003, the MEK surrendered to US troops. But they came under repeated attack from pro-Iranian forces
1: no friend of the U.S., of course. On that basis, the American military in particular was keen to cultivate the MEK and to retain their friendship. And the Americans, basically, after sounding out various possibilities, at one point Norway was mooted, but then the late John McCain, Arizona senator, helped to negotiate a deal under which they would leave Iraq and come to Albania. The Albanian government, it turned out, was very keen to make friends with America and to carry favour with Washington.
2: So the MEK moved to Albania in a migration backed by the US, and it's clearly an expensive operation.
1: They've got all these incredible, huge, great buildings They put on these amazing events. The summit that I witnessed, the virtual summit, Even though it was held online, just the technology involved in setting up 50,000 locations, the linking of these locations, and the giant mosaic of screens that they had erected in this place where Mariam Rajavi was filmed waving her flag, it was all carefully choreographed and it was a bit like a sort of film shoot, basically. And that all costs big money, and so there's been a lot of speculation about that. But I asked whether the Saudis were lending a hand, which is often rumoured, and that was denied. The answer that I was given was that they have their own TV station, which broadcasts day and night. And it's rather cheekily called, I think, Iran National Television. And uh, they have these three-day telethons where they raise money. And the Iranian diaspora is very large and in various parts of the world, especially in the States, with a lot of extremely wealthy individuals who give generously, apparently.
2: Like other journalists, I've had my own encounter with the M.E.K. Well over a decade or so ago, when I received an invitation to attend a conference with the offer, as I recall, to chair a session for them. The expenses offered were stratospheric. In the low thousands, I think. It turned out to be run by the M.E.K., who I'd only vaguely heard of before. But when I looked them up, the whole thing worried me. Much talk about freedom and democracy... Are just a little bit too much like a cult in their organization. Lucrative, though. I think that's what
1: attracts the speakers at the summits. For instance, John Bolton, Trump's former national security adviser, and Mike Pompeo was a speaker this year,
2: the former Secretary of State under Trump. As well as the former president's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani.
0: Regime change in Iran is within reach. Don't listen to the pessimists and don't listen to the Iranian apologists who are paid to say that. It's within reach. The same
1: things
2: are happening
0: in Iran that have happened numerous times in other countries.
1: And that's the goal of Maryam Rajavi. It's very, very simple. The goal is a free Iran. And then various British MPs, including Teresa Villiers, and the former speakers, John Burko and Betty Boothroyd even, was uh, there making rather quite a stirring speech and looking forward to the, the triumph in Tehran and congratulating Maryam Rajavi for putting women in the vanguard of the struggle. What do the Iranian authorities say about them? The Iranian authorities have consistently dismissed them as a terrorist cult they like to promote this narrative of the MEK as a weird sect. There have been cases of you know, Iranian diplomats trying to promote this story of the MEK as a still active terrorist organisation without really presenting any concrete uh, proof of it. It's easier, though, to present the story of the MEK as, as being at least, at the very least, slightly strange <laughs> in its behaviour with the claims that are made by some of the people who are self-styled defectors. Mm. It's a rather controversial point because, and it's difficult to establish the exact truth about what's going on. It's rather like you know, entering a hall of smoke and mirrors when you start dealing with this organization <laughs> and their critics. Hello. hello, uh, how how are are Good to see you. you. How you? Good. Good. Hey, how are you? Good how to meet you. Are you Hassan? In Tirana, I did visit a cafe where I met a man who left the organisation, he's called Hassan Hirani, and he's built a cafe and a lot of the other friends of his who turned up who had also been members of the MEK, supposedly, seemed to be working there. Well, perhaps um, perhaps we can have a chat with you to start off with, just to see Yes. all of you. How many of you are there here? Yes, different age, uh, Mr. Ramon, uh, 30. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. And all of us with the factor of organisation. Did you leave at the same time? Yes. And, and they claimed leave. to have left the organisation, uh, some of them because they had been... Iranian soldiers who were captured in battle during the Iran-Iraq war and captured by Iraq, but given over to the MEK and put in the MEK's camp. And then they claim almost to have been held prisoner for all these years. And then Hassan Heyrani said that the camp was indeed like a prison. Just a person who have experienced life in the organization of Mujahideen can understand and feel Uh, 100% the animal farm book. Very worse than prison, because in prison, your family can come every week or every month to see you and uh, directly visit um, and give you something. But in the organization, no. It's a psychological prison and body prison. Now, when I put all that to the officials in the camp, you know, they strongly denied it and they said that it was the same cast of characters every time who came out with these accusations and that they were being financed by an NGO that it was a front for Iranian intelligence. Hassan Heirani did actually tell me, without even being asked, that he was indeed receiving money from an NGO in Iran without naming it. But it's not entirely clear whether or not these claims are being made simply to discredit the MEK because the people who are making them are being paid to do that by the regime, or whether there is some genuine grievance. It could be a mixture of both.
2: Did you get the impression when you were there that you were talking to people who were intimately connected with what was going on in Iran? Or did you get the impression that essentially you were talking to a whole lot of people who haven't been in Iran for a very long time, want to claim that what's going on there has something to do with them, but actually who people in Iran probably no longer even remember.
1: They certainly spend a lot of time trying to exert an influence on events in their homeland. One of the main activities in the camp, although they deny this is in any sense a troll factory. But one of the main activities is sitting in large rooms in front of computers. I think everyone we met in the camp said this is how they spend their days. And what they're doing, they claim, is spreading social media postings by people inside Iran to bring them to a wider audience. They did claim, however, that they coordinate protests or they try to. It's it's hard to know exactly what influence they have inside Iran and how big their network is. The point that they make often is that, according to their calculations, around 100,000 of their members have been killed since the revolution in 1979. Now, this is an awfully large community of families who have suffered under the regime, and they say that this network of people is their power base in a sense. So I think clearly they do have supporters. The question is, you know, how extensive is that network inside Iran?
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times foreign correspondent Matthew Campbell. You can read Matthew's report from Inside Ashraf 3 online now and watch the documentary filmed by the Sunday Times team. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Asia Fuchs, and sound design was by David Crackles. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to Times at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.